Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we have to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see from this chapter. And, and we seek your guidance of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 14. Up until this point, we've been talking about the millennial kingdom. And this chapter really does show the return of Christ, uh, which leads into the millennial kingdom. And very powerful chapter. It tells us a lot of things we don't get in any other chapter in the Bible about that particular point in time uh, for eschatology, which is just a nice word for saying the end times, <laughs> doctrines of the end times. And so this is a very important book, uh, a chapter within the study of end times. So chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and your spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house rifled. And the woman ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be, not be cut off from the prey. Then says, shall the Lord go forth and fight against the, those nations as when he fought in, in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the mountain of olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall move toward the north and half the toward the south. And you shall flee to the valleys and the mountains. For the valley of the, of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, you shall flee like as you did before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day in which shall be known to the Lord, not, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living water shall go forth from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, and half of them toward the hinter sea. In summer and in winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord, and his name, and his name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geber to Rim, Rimnon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up, inhabited in her place from Beth, Benjamin's gate unto the, in, unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, unto the tower of Hananiel, unto the king's winepress, and men shall dwell in it, and there shall no more, and there shall no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. All right. This is a very interesting picture of the end days. It says, Behold, in that day the Lord comes, and his spoil shall be divided into the midst of you. This is a picture of battle language, the king coming in and splitting the spoils amongst the army. And this is the way it used to be. When you went to war, you were paid by the spoils of war. You... Uh, it really wasn't until the Greeks and the Romans the, and even the Babylonians to, Babylonians to a degree that actually hired army. Before that, you had a bodyguard that was hired, and they were the trained soldiers. And when you went to war, you just called all, your, all the men of your, of your nation together, and you went out. And after the battle, they stripped all the wealth of everybody, you know, the land and the wealth, and it was passed around to the soldiers. And that was their way of being paid. And so... This is that language. The Lord is going to come up, and you are going to get your spoils divided among, amongst you. And it's kind of an interesting, it says for verse 2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city. This is a pretty big thing we know from Revelation talking about the same thing. You know, the nations, all the nations of the world will gather against Israel on that last, on that, the end of the seven years just before Jesus returns. And this is even before that because the city of Jerusalem is going to fall to these people and his people are going to re, re, react and, and retreat. And he says that half of them are, are, not going to be, are not going to be free. They're going to be taken captive. And the Antichrist in here is going to be doing anything. And it's quite interesting. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. And that literally means the same things it does today. Plundered. 
going in and not nicely plundered. You know, they are going to throw things around and totally demolish everything in, the, in their houses. And the women will be ravaged or violated. It would be an easy, clean way to say that. Uh, they're, they're going to be abused. And half of the, half the city, will, half the population of Israel will be taken captive. And this is a big deal. Before this event, according to Revelation, Israel has been at peace before this assault on them goes. And the Antichrist will come in. He will create a uh, deal of peace with them. He'll give them three and a half years of peace. And he's pretending to be the Messiah at that time. Now, what does that totally mean to us? We don't know what that means. How is he going to show them that he's the Messiah? There's so much speculation, we can't even begin to understand that. But the Jews understand that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, that he has to be, you know, a number of things that have to be true. So we don't know. Will, will the Antichrist be born in the Middle East? Will he, you know, what will be? Or will he just assume that he lived there? We don't know exactly how he's going to come up, but they're going to believe that he's their Messiah. He's going to give them peace in the Middle East, which they have not had in many, 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 many millennia. He's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. The third temple will be built. And he's going to let all this happen. And for three and a half years, according to Revelation, they're going to have peace. Then the Antichrist will stand up in the temple and say, I am God, worship me. The Jews will reject him. And at that point, he will move against the Jewish people with the entire world at his disposal because he is the world's governor at that point. So he will gather all the military of the world and come against Israel. And if God wasn't defending them, they would be wiped out. But God will defend them and say half the people are going to survive. Now, this is a big deal that's going to happen, and it's going to be brutal. And because of where the Jews are at this point, you know, we think of Jews as being worshipers of God, and right now many of them are not worshipers of God. They're living on good works, trying to please God. They're trying to do rituals. They're trying to do all these things. When they get the temple, they're going to try to depend on sacrificial ser service and all the stuff the Old Testament uh, talks about, all the sacrifices, Yom Kippur, uh, Passover, all the sacrifices we've made at the temple. And for three and a half years, they're going to celebrate as if they're finally the Messiah has come. We're going to have our world, world domination out of Israel. And they're going, to, they're going to be singing, happy days are here again, and it's only going to be for a short time. And the Antichrist turns against them, and devastation happens. Devastation is going to happen to them, not total annihilation because God says he's going to protect them, but half the population is a pretty good number of people being killed during that, during that period of time. So this is a big deal. And they're going to run it. And then it's in verse 3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. This is God stepping forward. This is where Jesus is going to come out of heaven, speak a word, and end the battle. And we, and we follow behind him in a the, in the very, very quickly, quickly con, uh, consumed battle. Uh, he speaks, they're dead. <laughs> And it would be a pretty big deal. Uh, but there will be an initial battle for some small period of time. Well, Israel is going to be in battle. Yeah. Yeah. Israel is going to be attacked. He's going to attack, but God is defending them, whether he's given them supernatural strength to do it, like he did in the Six-Day War, where great supernatural things happened and, and they won the battle, or will he drop hail on them like he did in, in, in the Book of Judges and kill people? Will he send animal, you know, to help them win battles. We don't know. There will be three and a half years of battle. Three and a half years. No, but for the battle before Jesus comes at the end of... At the very end, when all the nations are coming against him, we, that'll be this particular battle being described. But there'll be all kinds of battles, because Satan is going to be trying to take those half the people who get away. The church will be in heaven. Now, the final battle at the end of the, of the millennial kingdom is 
well, they're both going to happen in Armageddon. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's kind of an interesting place. Uh, the Valley of Armageddon, where the battles are fought, have been described by just about every military genius as the perfect battlefield. It's a long, flat, flattish valley where people can battle real easily in. So it's been the site for many battles over, over the millennia. And the last two battles that are recorded in scripture will be <laughs> held there. The one where Jesus returns and they're dead, and the last one where Satan gathers up the world to come against God at the end of the thousand year reign. And that's kind of a strange one where people have been reigned directly by God and still rebel against him. Let me get this straight. The first battle, uh, what we were talking about when half the people remain and everything, that's going to be at the Valley of Armageddon? The Valley of Armageddon ends right there at Jerusalem anyway, so all of that is the Valley of Armageddon. Okay. Now, whether it's, that's not usually what people say when they say the Battle of Armageddon, but it is in that, in that plane because it Jerusalem's on a hillside. So we have a big hillside that it's on, and everything comes that way from the northwest. And that's where the Valley of Armageddon lies. So, and will that be, one last question, that'll be at the end of the seven years when that happens? The final battle, no, the, the first final battle <laughs> is at the end of the seven years. Okay. Jerusalem is taken, people are being killed, people are being brutalized, God is protecting his people. Uh, but they're still going to lose half their population during that three and a half years of attacks. And then Jesus steps in. And now when he steps in, here's our, here's our picture. And this is, this is interesting. Verse 4 says, And his feet shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley. And half the mountain shall remove to the north. And half the mountain shall move to the south. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus was with the disciples on the very last time when he was talking to them. He ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And the angel said, as you have seen him leave, so shall he come back. And that means literally to the Mount of Olives. And as soon as his foot touches the Mount of Olives in his descent, the mountain will split in two. Oh, that's what they're talking about. Yes. The literal mountain will split into two and create a new valley uh, right there at that, where that mountain now stands. Uh, this is a big deal uh, out there. Uh, now, I've heard reports that there is actually a fault line across that mountain. And so people will go, well, see, it's natural. Well, no, this is supernatural. He comes in, and this is an earthquake that. But the big fault line runs north to south. Yeah, and it's not quite the way it's supposed to run. So. There's one in Revelation that takes down the mountains, and this could be the same one, but I don't think so. It's in the wrong time frame, but, but the mountain in Revelation says that the mountains will fall. That's a pretty big earthquake, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, Jerusalem is still on a mountain at this point. so. <laughs> uh, and I believe that most of the world was flatter back, back before the Noadic flood and the shifting of the tectonic plates and everything. Uh, so it's quite possible. But there will be a great mountain. Jesus comes down, he his foot touches Mount Olives, and it splits into two. And this is an earthquake that is going to be severe enough, and it literally changes the flow of water. All right? And this is what we're going to get to as we get through the end of this. Uh, and it says, And you shall flee to the valleys of the mountain, for the valley of the mountain shall reach unto Azal, and which you shall flee as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah of Judah, and the Lord our God shall come and all of his saints with you. I believe that those that are, are flying are the enemy, <laughs> the, the ones that are getting away from, from him. Uh, yeah, the, 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 ye shall flee, I think, is the enemy, not, not, not because it, that are the Jews themselves. Uh, it's not us. We're following behind him in, in victory. But it's going to fall, and some people are, leaving, are going to live, and we don't know where Azal is. I did a lot of research. Nobody even has an clue 
where this one is in any of the research that I did. Uh, but people are going to flee there. <laughs> and it talks about this earthquake in the days of U U uh, Uzziah. This is an earthquake that we do not know anything about in, from our history. But apparently there was an earthquake in Jerusalem during the days of Jer Uzziah that was so strong that even by standards three, four hundred years later, they're still talking about the great earthquake, the big one. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of like when we talk about some of the earthquakes in California, when they go, where were you on, <laughs> on, on the big earthquake? You know, you know, that's the kind of history this one has. We don't know how big it is. We don't know what it did, uh, what changes it made. But apparently, it was big enough that they're going, there was this big earthquake, remember. Remember this big earthquake, because we're about 400 years later, and they're going, remember that earthquake, which meant it had to be a major event in the days of Uriah, uh, Uzziah, and it's not mentioned in the Bible, other than here. <laughs> Uh, and from what I've been able to see, most of the scholars do not make, find reference to it in any history book other than Josephus, who seems to be quoting this, one, this, this verse. Uh, so that's the only reference we have of this great earthquake. And that's not really to be surprised, surprised over the long term, because what are historians worried about? What did people do? Not, not natural disasters. Uh, so they don't usually refer to the natural disaster. So it's not a surprise that it's not in history books that much. Uh, and, you know, unless it changed a dynasty or something, nobody's going to care. And it happened in U Uzziah's day, and he was king before, and he was king afterwards. So, okay, you know, had a had a major earthquake. Who cares? <laughs> the temple still stood. Jerusalem still stood. Uh, no, no big deal. <laughs> uh, but this earthquake is, he's making reference to it, and Zechariah is looking at it and saying, remember that earthquake. Remember, this, remember the earthquake of legend. <laughs> this, this one is going to be, be in, that, in that ballpark. Um, you know, and we have no size on it or anything with it, but this is when Jesus returns to start the rule for the thousand years. And the very first thing is this earthquake on Mount Olive where he touches down and the, the mountain splits into two, in two. And verse 6 says, and, you shall, and, he, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at the evening time there shall be light. And this is kind of an interesting thing. The light shall not be clear or costly or, or precious or dark, thickened or curdled, literally is what it means. So there seems to be some indication that when he comes, I believe that this is not talking about the physical light, but the light of doctrine and teaching that is so prevalent in the scriptures. Uh, he's going to say his light is not going to be darkened. His light is not going to be there, and it's just going to be clear. Um, and this is one of the things that's real hard when we get into the, to the English side of the word light. It means so much more to the Hebrews than it does to us. Uh, light refers to the physical light. But you've got to remember that in the, the very first day of creation that happened was in the beginning God created light. No source of light, but he created light and dark or his presence of light, his word, his, his truth. But it was something that did give light. It literally made a night and a day on this earth. But there was no substance to it except for him. In the new heaven and earth, God is our light. And I think it's much more than just the physical light. He is light. He is truth. He is how we see he is everything about what happens as you know so it's much deeper meaning than just just light it is it involves the truth it involves everything and in that day jesus comes and he's going to rule in truth and justice in a way that has not happened on this world <laughs> since the fall of adam and eve and there was nobody to rule back then so there was no ruling going on but We've not had this type of rule 
where it is done correctly, where we will have a king that loves his people so much that nothing, there will be no harm to his people because of how much he loves them. Uh, and everything will be provided for. And we can't even fathom what this is going to be like. Uh, it's not going to be a perfect place like, garden, like the Garden of Eden, but he's going to rule with an iron scepter, and he's going to clean things up, and people's lives are going to start becoming longer. We're told that you know, if you die during the Millennial Kingdom at 100 years old, you're considered a child. Uh, now, that does, I don't know how long life will be if you're a child still at 100, but uh, life will be lengthened. It indicates that the animals will be back to peaceful like, like they were created to be. So it's going to be an interesting world to, to see, to, to be a part of. And yet people are going to reject Jesus at the end of it. Uh, and that is just hard to even fathom. Part of it is, I think, because they're being forced to be obedient and they want to sin. So when they're given an opportunity to end by Satan saying, come on, we're going we're gonna to rebel and we're going to, we're going to be who we are, there's going to be many people who are saying, yeah, about time. I've been wanting to do this all along. Uh, because in our, in our heart, without Christ, we're sinful. And this will just prove the world's big lie right now is if everything was perfect, people would be perfect. So the last lie of Satan will be, de will be dealt with by the millennial kingdom. Here's your perfect world. You've got a perfect government. You've got just the right taxes. You've got rain in the right seasons. You've got good crops. You're not having famines. Your taxes aren't high. There's no war. Everybody loves one another. There's no problems, and you're still going to be bad. And take away the last lie of, lie of our world. And that's the lie that's being spoken right now. If everything was just perfect, if, every, if I didn't have bad influences on in our lives, we'd all be good and we'd be, we would be living in utopia. Well, God's going to give them utopia and they're still going to be bad. And it's going to be that, that proof. Every time Satan lies, God puts a proof in there that says, it's a lie, don't believe it. And he's going to take the last big lie and say, see, it's, this, is, this, was, this was not true either. I, and he's going to say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you want true life, it has to be done God's way in Christ Jesus to have true life, to have joy, to have true peace. Nothing else is ever going to fill that. And the millennial kingdom will be that last proof that God is the only one. Those who choose him and follow him willingly and desiring after him will, will be blessed and have, enter in eternal life. Those who aren't will reject him and enter into eternal death. While this is all going on, what is the rest of the world doing? Well, we're going to get there, but they're all, they're all, they're all gathering to worship, worshiping him. Remember, all the, all the armies are against him, so most of the fighting men are dead. The bulk of the fighting men are dead. Uh, the rest of the world will have to, make, will have to bow to him. And we're going to see the extent of their bowing to him. You would think so. But Satan knows what he's fighting. He's fighting God. He's not just fighting Israel. He's fighting God. And, you know, he knows the scriptures as, best, as well as we do. So I don't know why he'd gather all the armies to have them killed. So, but that's him. <laughs> now, the other side of this, as we know from Revelation, is anybody who's taken the mark of the beast does not get to go into the millennial kingdom. They, be, they get cast into hell. So the majority of the world is going to be cast into hell awaiting the final judgment when hell and, and the lake and, and uh, Hades and death gets cast into the lake of fire. So mo the majority of the world who have taken the mark of the beast will be cast out and wait for a thousand years in, in punishment for the final judgment, which they're guilty, because anybody being brought out will, will be guilty at the white throne judgment. So lots going on here. Yeah. Lots going on here, and that's why I'm tying Revelation in as we, as we come in, because this is laying the foundation for what we know from Revelation as well, but this gives us a different picture of it. So, uh, and this is kind of an interesting thing. It seems to be that there will be longer days, in the, according to the scripture, that it will be light at night. God is creating that light. He's bringing back more of the original 
way that it was to be uh, for us. And it says that in the evening time shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go forth from Jerusalem, half toward the former sea and half toward the hinter sea, and summer and winter shall, shall it be. And these are talking about the Dead Sea being restored. And also, some people say Galilee, some people see, say the Mediterranean as the other sea being, being on it. I've heard both, and I'm not going to be able to determine which one because there's no real definition of the hinder and former seas. I do kind of believe that it's Galilee and, and, and uh, the Dead Sea. But I've seen many people say it's the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm not going to argue one way. We do know that the Dead Sea is one of them. <laughs> Everybody says the Dead Sea is the other one, and it'll be totally brought to life again with all the water, water that's being moved into it. And from what I understand, it's becoming deader with every, <laughs> every passing year. Uh, so this is going to be of a miraculous nature for it to be restored and brought back. But again, this earthquake that shatters Mount uh, uh, Olivet is going to create a new set of rivers that flow the other directions from where they're already flowing and create living water. And again, some people have tried to spiritualize this. I believe it's really going to happen. because, But at the same time, out of Jerusalem during this period of time is going to come life. God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, is reigning in Jerusalem for that thousand years. And life will be flowing out of Jerusalem figuratively and literally is, you know, in the form of the, the water, but everything is going to be good, a perfect government. And this is going to be one of those interesting things. You know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but you can't corrupt God who has absolute power. So it will be the perfect government. They can't bribe him. He's, he's honest. He's righteous. He's just. He's going to be the, the, the only king that would ever be able to rule the world correctly. And this is going to be his job during that period of time, is to rule the world directly. I'm sorry, one more. Uh -huh. That last part of verse 8, what does your translation say? In summer and in winter shall it be. This, this NIV says half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. In summer and in winter. Mm -hmm. That's why some people say Mediterranean and yeah. Dead Sea. But yours doesn't even mention mine it. says, well, former sea and, and hinter sea is what mine says. And hinter being inside or something? For, <laughs> mine says former sea. If you go with the former sea, what I've always heard in the past using the word former, they talked about Galilee and the hinter being the Dead Sea. But some of them are saying east to west, which would be the Dead Sea to the to the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm not going to argue one way or the other. Two seas are getting a fresh supply of water and being refreshed. Doesn't matter to me what seas they are. Uh, so I, I know the newer translations say Mediterranean. So, And it's going to be in winter and summer. In other words, the water is always going to be flowing. So this is also becoming a very large spring of water this is very reminiscent of the rock in the wilderness as they, as they wandered in the wilderness and the rock was split and the rock produced water enough to, to water three and a half million people, which is a very large river. I mean, we, you know, we think of when they split the rock, you know, oh, there's this trickle of water coming out. Well, that w a trickle of water would not have, have watered three and a half million people. When he hit that rock the first time, it had to have produced a river of water, a large river of water. And so this splitting of the mountain creates a new flow of water that is a you know, huge torrent of water, enough to be able to make it number one, no matter which way you're going, whether you're going to Galilee, which is a fairly short distance, or you're going to the Mediterranean, fairly long distance, that's still a lot of water that's going to flow. He's creating a new river, a new river or redirecting the Jordan or something, but a new river is being formed. And if, it's going, if we are talking about the Galilee, then it's also changing the direction of the flow of the water because the water flows from Galilee to the Dead Sea. So if it's 
Galilee, like I've always taught, that river is flowing the, wrong, <laughs> the opposite direction from what it's always flown. And I'm not going to argue whether it's Galilee or, or Mediterranean. I don't care one way or the other. God's going to create a big river that's going to, to move into do, two different seas. And it's going to bring life. It's going to be a, a great water. And it'll also be water flowing out of Jerusalem in the form of life as the righteous king of the universe does this. And the idea that it flows winter and summer means that there's no let up. Usually during one or the other season, the rain stop, flow, you know, stop falling and you get places where you can ford it. This is saying that that river is going to be constant. It's not affected by lack of rain or lots of rain. It's going to just flow because it's a, virtually a supernatural river. It formed when God touches down on the ground, and now we have a life-giving river flowing out. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of powerful things going on. And in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Lord and his name one. Jesus comes and he reigns. He will be king. This is the event that the Jews have been waiting for forever. The day when they are ruled by the Messiah from Jerusalem. Comes in at their, just as they're being ready to be destroyed, destroys their enemies and will be king. And everybody will recognize that he is king and that he is Lord. And no battles, no, no problems going on. But here is the day that they are, are expecting. This is what the apostles thought they were signing up for when they were following the Messiah. They're going, we're, going, we're on the ground floor of the new dynasty. This is why when Jesus would talk about dying, it didn't make sense to them. When he was crucified, it didn't make sense to them. Now, having this verse in mind, can you imagine what they're thinking of when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, goes to Mount Olivet? And they're thinking, well, as soon as his feet touch that ground, we're going, to, we're going to see this mountain split and a great earthquake, and we're going, to, we're going to see him take over and be in charge. And what did they see instead? Him ascending into heaven. You know, I believe that when he first ascended before the angel spoke to them, they were probably heartbroken. Here's our second chance. The Messiah is back from the dead. They couldn't kill him. And now he's disappearing into the clouds. And the angel comes and says, as you've seen him go, so he will return. And they're going, all right, we're waiting. We're waiting for their life. And I believe the, Jew, the disciples did not want to leave Jerusalem because they wanted to be in Jerusalem when Jesus returned and touched down on Mount Olivet so that they would be saying, we're here, we've been waiting for you. I have a feeling that for those first couple years, they probably went to Mount Olivet frequently to look up and say, where is he? Because they remembered this verse, saying when he comes, he's going to touch down on Mount Olivet. And so they were always looking at that mountain, always looking for the return of the Messiah. And this is a big deal. And again, we've got to know these kind of verses to really understand what was going on in their hearts. They did not understand what was going on. They did not understand the Messiah that was going to die for the sins of the earth, or for the world. They did not understand that Jesus was the Passover lamb and also the Yom Kippur sacrifice and the Thanksgiving sacrifice and all the other sacrifices rolled up into one. They did not understand that he was the one that was bringing peace to the world by his death, burial, and resurrection. They did not understand any of that. It took them years and decades to finally realize what was being taught to them. And this gives us hope as Christians because it takes us years and decades to figure out what's going on in the Bible you know, as well. So hopefully that is something good. We recognize that we are on the same plane as the disciples. There are times when we don't understand. There's times when we think we understand and don't understand. Yeah, Yeah. You know, and yet he is there all through it. Yeah, but I mean, not like the New Testament. Yeah. Where, you know. But 
one of the things, and I've said this many times, we have hard times really understanding the New Testament sometimes because we look at it as Gentiles and not as Hebrews. Hebrews had a way of thinking that was based on the Old Testament teachings. And that's what I'm saying. When they went up to Mount Olivet after his resurrection, they're probably getting very excited. Oh, here we go. We're going to see the the kingdom established now, finally. After all this up and down, we're going to get to see the kingdom established. And then he is taken out of their sight. You know, so there's another crestfallen moment. You know, we thought this was going to be it. You know, we don't fully understand how they thought and what they meant when they said certain things. And this is why it's pretty interesting. Paul's favorite term for himself was a bond slave for Christ. Now, if you don't know the Old Testament, you really don't know what that means, but that is somebody who voluntarily chose to remain a servant for, some, for, for the person that they sold themselves into uh, bondage for at the end of the, when it came to the year of Jubilee and they were supposed to be freed, and they were going, I like my master and I don't know that, you know, basically I don't know that I can handle things on my own, so I'll just stay and be a servant. And they were called a bond slave a voluntary slave. Now, once you made that decision, you weren't able to change your mind, but, but, and which is also one of the proofs of uh, eternal salvation, that we can't lose our salvation. The bond slave was a slave the rest of their days. Um, And so Paul's favorite statement was, I am a bond slave. I have chosen to make myself his servant. And that meant a whole slew of things involved with that. So we have all these different things, and these different words have very strong meanings to the writers of them, and sometimes we get lost in what those words mean because we don't think the way they do. Uh, and it's very important, you know. And I understand when somebody first gets saved, I'll recommend read just the New Testament and do the best you can with the Holy Spirit in you to figure it out. But there is a point where as we grow with Christ that we need to get into the Old Testament to understand how the gen- how the how the Jews thought and how the, how the disciples would have think, were thinking when they said certain things. And then we get to know the full depth of what they were saying. So here we are, Mount, Mount Olivet, God coming down to rule. Verse 10 says, And all the, plain shall be, all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimnon, south of Jerusalem, and, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her, in her place. So we have two different places. We have uh, the city of Geba, which is somewhere in the Galilee area, they believe, or there are some people that say it's just south of Jerusalem in a place called uh, Simeon. Uh, But what's going to happen in all that hilly area (laughs) that is out there, God's going to turn it into a flat plain and Jerusalem is going to be the high place. So that everybody in that area will look up, which is why I believe it's all the way out to Galilee. I think God's going to make a huge plane and say, here is my city. Everybody's looking at my city. No matter where you're at, you're seeing my city. Well, this translation here leads you to believe that that plane goes all the way down to Akaba, uh, the waters down there. It could, the it could be. Uh, it's hard when we don't know where exactly all these cities are. Uh, but it's going to be uh, from Geba, which is two different, uh, way up north. So I, I think it's all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, basically, was going to be flat. But this goes back to there's an earthquake that flattens out all the hills and all the, all the world during the, during the tribulation period. Could this be part of that earthquake that's flattened everything out so that everything now looks upward to Jerusalem. Now, most people aren't going to see it around the world, but, you know, with the world flat, and it says, okay, here's the high spot. (laughs) Everybody, I'm ruling from Jerusalem. It's higher than everything else. Only God could make things like that and flatten out the world. It's just Jerusalem, isn't it? Not all of the land that's turned into a plane. I believe that it's Jerusalem by what it says. And it's pretty clear that Jerusalem is the one that's lifted up. Now, does that mean it's got a huge, you know, cliff lake, or is it, 
you know, slanted up. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to define that. Jerusalem is still interable and, and tra trans you know, they can travel to it. So I believe there's going to be some hills to it. Uh, Jerusalem is already on a hill. But what he's saying basically is I'm going to flatten everything else out and everybody, everybody will see Jerusalem no matter. And Jerusalem is pretty much visible in most of, most of the area anyway because it's so much higher than everything else. But that would mean he's now taking Mount Horeb down. He's taking down uh, a lot of the mountains around that area so that people will now say, there's Jerusalem. Uh, kind of like uh, if you've ever studied the American crossing of the, of the plains, and they would look out and say, we're going to that point way over there. Be, you know, and it looks like it's you know, just a day's trip away, but it's you know, months away because it's all flat, and we're going to that mountain over there. <laughs> Yeah, well, now the, I'm thinking more of the pinnac you know, the pinnacles and stuff that people would, uh, on, the, on the Oregon Trail, there were kind of different places where you'd see for months ahead on, the, on, the, on, the, on it, and, and you'd think you're always getting there, we're always getting there, we're always getting there, we're always getting there, and you find out that it was, you know, 400, mile, 400 miles away, you know, it wasn't, I think that's what we're seeing here. God is going to make Jerusalem be the center of attention in that area. That no matter where you are, there's the mountain. <laughs> there's the mountain. That's where the king rules. Uh, and so I think that's what's going to be happening here is that that happens. Uh, and it says, you know, they, they will be um, inhabited, and Jerusalem will be inhabited from Benjamin's gate to the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananani and into the, the king's wine press. Now, I don't know where all those places are because I didn't grab a map of Jerusalem, but just will suffice it to say that Jerusalem is fully inhabited uh, and, and, and it, you know, indwelled. And it's going, to be, it's going to be a royal city. So that makes sense that it's going to be, you know, all the important people will be there. Now, who's God's important people will probably be very different from what the world would say is important people. I would say, number one, it's all Jews. <laughs> all right, because they're still his people. Now, we're coming, we're going to rule with him. But the city will most likely be inhabited by his, his original called people, the Jewish people. And then we will rule with him as well. Um, so we have this big thing going on. And in verse 11, And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. No more rocket attacks. No more, no more attacks being surrounded. No more, no more problems with it. It will be a safe place to be because God is ruling there. And right now, you know, for the most part, people say that Jerusalem is a safe place, even though they have rocket attacks and bombs and everything. Overall, they say it's a safe place and people feel secure in Jerusalem and in Israel in general, even though people are that nations are attacking it from all sides all the time, they say pretty much they feel safe in Jerusalem. I don't know how they can feel safe with all that stuff going on, but it is considered safe. And if you've lived in a city, it's kind of an interesting thing to live in a city. I've lived in a city, and I've lived on the outside of a city, which was not a nice area at one time in one of the cities I lived in. And it was so funny because I got used to the gunshots. I got used to what's the sirens and everything. Uh, Walking outside on the church one time and gunshots when the people were in total panic and I'm going, it's not a big deal. It's about five blocks away. You know, I had just gotten so used to what was going on. I knew when to worry and when not to worry. And usually I was five, six blocks away from the problem areas. So I didn't usually worry. And I think that's how they're so used to what's going on that they know when to, when to be concerned and when not to be concerned. And then we hear it, you know, you know, outside of that area, go. Oh man, which you know, look at all, look at all these bad things. Um, when I was on the East Coast, people would hear about the fires in the on the West Coast that burned thousands and thousands of acres of land, and they're going, and they would go, nobody died, and they're going, how could nobody die with thousands of acres? I go, you don't understand how far things are apart from each other on the West Coast, because on the East Coast it's so inhabited that if you burned a thousand acres of land on the East Coast, you'd burn three or four cities. You know, they're all, the cities are compacted, the towns are compacted, and, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't destroy thousands of acres of land in the, on the East Coast without destroying a lot. Out here, not a whole lot. 
You know, so again, your perspective. Uh, we hear about earthquakes in California. When I lived in California, we really didn't care about most of the earthquakes. When I lived in Guam, we never even cared about any of the earthquakes. You know, the, it shook a little bit. You know, we never got an earthquake super, super bad, but it was in the ring of fire. We had earthquakes all the time. So we didn't even think, you know, they were not that big a deal. Uh, when I lived on, in, the, in the south, hurricanes. You know, you got to the place where, you know, it's just another hurricane. Yeah. And everybody else is going, wow, hurricane's hitting them. Well, look, you know, it's the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, and so the point I'm making is when you get used to something, it's something that always happens, you start getting kind of blah about it. It's like, okay. But here it's going to be peace. Finally, the peace of Israel that they have been waiting for all of time will be there. Why? Because the proper king is ruling. He has rescued his people. Many of them have died, but he has rescued his people. And during that assault on, on the Jews, Satan is going to unleash all of his anger upon them. And it is literally, according to Revelation, that if God hadn't protected his people, they would have been annihilated because his anger is going to be so strong. And we saw, you know, women being raped, people being taken into captivity and, and brutal murders in the first part of this chapter. Satan's anger and frustration at this point in time, he knows his days are numbered at that point. When the Jews literally rebel against him and will not worship him because we're told that God opens their eyes and they finally see that this is not the Messiah and they turn from him. And his anger is going to really be poured out on them. He thought that he had them. And he overplays his hand. And it says he's going to overplay his hand. And he's still going to overplay his hand even though he knows it. Now, this is just an amazing thing. Satan knows the word of God better than we do. And yet he's going to do exactly what God says he's going to do. And fail. And in the long run, fail. And it's hard to kind of comprehend how, we, how he thinks he's not going to fail. You know, somehow his goal has always been to destroy Israel. Because if he can destroy Israel, then all the prophecies get wiped out. The very first prophet, prophecy was in Genesis 3.15 when he told the woman that your seed will crush the serpent's head. So what has he been trying to do? Destroy Israel before Jesus was born. Over and over and over again, he tries to destroy Israel. He tries to destroy the royal seed. He tries to get them to killed. He has various governments move against them. He has Haman come against them to try to wipe them out. He has various groups trying to wipe out the Jewish people. He has Pharaoh trying to have them kill all the boys. Pharaoh thought it was just to try to keep them um, you know, from having a larger population explosion, Satan's plan was let's kill all the let's kill all the males so that we can't have a seed of Abraham that's going to live to where the Messiah is going to come out of. So he understood what God called Abraham that Abraham's seed was going to produce the Messiah. He understood when David's seed was you know David was told the king is going to come out of your out of your tribe, and all the trouble he caused for David and his and his family. You know, uh, with the sin of David and, and all of this uh, that went on, he almost was able to take them out from that. He was almost able to take them out on, you know, during the days uh, when Athaliah took over and wiped out all the king's children except for one. You know, almost wiping out the seed of David. She came the closest of all people of fulfilling Satan's plan to eliminate the prophecies of God. Then Jesus is born, and what happens? Herod tries to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and Judea because he wanted to make sure that that baby was dead. Now Herod was looking out, I just want my I want a future rival taken out. Satan's going, I can get him now. He's a, he's a helpless baby. I can take out God now. And all through all the anti-Semitism that's been going on to try to wipe out the Jewish people, Satan couldn't stop the Messiah from being born. So now his goal is to try to wipe out Israel so that they're not around at the end times because if they're not around at the end times for God to rescue, 
he is able to stop the prophecies. And that is why he will move for three and a half years to try to destroy Israel directly. And somehow he has deceived himself to think that he can win. Uh, and I don't know how, but he, and this is why you said it's overkill to bring all of nations against Israel, but that is his last desperate chance. So that would be like the one world government. Oh, he's definitely, he's one world government during the tribulation period. He is in, he in true. But he's going to try to get rid of Israel because if he can get rid of Israel, then he can prove that God didn't know the future. And then he could say, see, I told you you didn't know the future. Now you can't. Now, none of, nothing that you've ever said is going to be true. He's so stupid. He doesn't know he's not. <laughs> he's stupid. Yeah. He's convinced himself, just as we do to ourselves when we fight against God and his will in our life, somehow we're going to win. Satan has been lied to himself enough to somehow he's going this to win. Been going on from day one from Adam and Eve. Yeah. And he hasn't been defeated yet, so, <laughs> which gives him more and more confidence that, he won't, that somehow he's going to win. But he is, his last ditch effort will be in that end of the seven year period and he will gather in everything that he can throw at them, every weapon, uh, mobilize every fighting man that he possibly can, all to attack a little small square piece of property. And he's still not going to win. And he's still not going to win. But he's going to throw everything that he possibly can at them. And then he's going to be released in the, you know, at the end of a thousand years to try one more time to come against God. One more time to try to win. He's preparing. He's, he's laying groundwork. He's doing lots of things right now. If you look at what, you know, when we look at all that's going on in this world right now, all the bad stuff, he is the mover behind everything. The ones he's moving don't realize what they're part of. Because their eyes aren't open and their ears aren't open. Well, they're not open. They're not seeing what's going on. They don't understand that they are all part of this massive plan. As we move more closer and closer to a one-world government, we move closer and closer to a one-world economy. It's all part of what God said we have, and it's Satan moving the pieces around to do so. The people are not necessarily evil to that point that they, they know who they're, who they're cooperating with, but they are influenced and directed by Satan, and he is bringing everything together. And the sad thing is, right now, we've got people all around the world screaming out for one world government to get us out of all the messes that we are in. So if you watch the news, you'll be hearing, we need, we need a centralized government to be able to get out of this. We need, we need, we need... All over, all around the world, people are screaming for just what Revelation says we're going to get. One world government. And that government is not going to be a nice government. He'll seem nice at first. But so did Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao Tao Sung. Genghis Khan probably was, was somewhat good at the beginning. Uh, Napoleon, all these guys that end up being dictators all start out doing what's good for their people and lifting their people up. And then their true face shows when they start trying to gather more and more power. Satan will appear, just as Revelation says, he appears on a white horse. Peace. Bringing false peace. He doesn't come in as a warrior. He comes in as a peacemaker. And everybody's going to think, finally, we've got our savior to save our world. Jews and the Islamic people will be able to, to live together in peace. Why? Because Satan won't be agitating them <laughs> to, to, to attack. You know, he's the one that's pushing the buttons behind the scenes. He's Islamic religion and all the other false religions are all part of his religion so if he's not pushing the, the, the spectrum on them they'll, they'll do what he says and they'll back off and we're already seeing the idea that all religions can, can re abound together because they're all, they're all the same after all is what they tell us well you know it is true all man made religions are the same 
do enough good things to please the deity. Or you go to the other extreme that there is no deity. Christianity is different from every religion because it is not religion. It's not a set of rules on how I please God. It is God paying my debt and him accepting me because of the debt that he paid. And this is the beauty of it. Christianity cannot get along with the other religions. Cannot. Because if we're truly Christian, we obey God and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me and that he is the only way. And it's not by the good things I do or anything else. It's all about what he has done. We are diametrically opposed to every other religion out there. Now, they can all come together if they want because they're false religions in the first place. It doesn't matter if they bend their, bend their will. The sad thing we have is in America today, so much of the church, so-called church, is following the ways of the world. It's not about Jesus. It's not about what he did for us. It's all about works. It's all about what you think is right. And this will make it very difficult as we go forward into the end days for the true Bible teaching churches to stand their ground. Because when they come up, they're going, well, what about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? They don't have any problem with what we're, what we're saying. And I go, well, I don't know how they're disobeying, uh, disobeying the Bible, but we are going to stand on the word of God. And then we will be persecuted for our stand on the word of God because we have a standard. We have a truth that we have to hold on to. And it's going to be tough when they look and they point to probably half or, or, or even three-quarters of the churches that are falling away from the word of God and doing it willingly. And then the churches that hold on to the word of God are going to be looked, like, looked at as troublemakers. And that's exactly what's happening already. Churches that hold on to the word of God are looked at as troublemakers. Well, you guys all have to evolve and get along with the, like all the other churches with, the, with all the other religions. You know, there's something wrong with you guys. Yeah, we're holding on to the truth. We're the remnant. We are the ones holding on to it, just as when we read the Old Testament and we watch the prophets preaching and being brutally attacked because they stood for God, even in Israel that was supposed to be God's people falling away from God, and being cursed and, and punished and killed because they held on to God. We are the remnant. God always has a remnant. And even during the tribulation period, there will be a remnant. 144,000 Jewish evangelists preaching to the world that they need to be saved. In a time when Satan is ruling. And they're going to be attacked mercilessly. And this is going to be the problem that we're going to see over this period of time, and it's going to keep getting... And the evil is going to keep rising up. But the good news is, the darker it gets in the world, the brighter our light shines for Christ. That makes us targets. But, you know, it gives us the opportunity to be like the apostles said, thank God I was worthy to suffer. We're going to have suffering. We're going to be attacked. We're going to suffer before the tribulation period. We will be taken out before the tribulation period, and then the suffering for the true church is really going to, you know, the church that's left with 144,000 Jewish believers is going to be horrible because they're going to be attacked mercilessly from Satan. But God says, I put a mark on them. I put my mark on them so that they will not be destroyed. So we've got a lot going on. And this is where we're going to stop before we see the final, the final battle, which is very, very interesting in its description. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you that there is going to be hope. You will reign just as you said you will. You, there will be a mastering of evil and that you are God and there is hope in all that you do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, 
make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.